0: Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Smith. Today's episode features expert discussion of the burden of HIV among BIPOC and migrant communities in the United States, as well as barriers to screening, evaluation, and treatment. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Tackling Racial Disparities in Care for HIV and Viral Hepatitis. During this podcast, Dr. Samantha Hill and Dr. David Malbranche will discuss key data on barriers to care among BIPOC and migrant individuals living with HIV in the United States. In addition, they will discuss strategies for overcoming these barriers, including expanded research into health disparities and community-based solutions with culturally appropriate interventions. For more information on Dr. Hill and Dr. Malbranche, along with a link to the complete program, including a downloadable slide set, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what the experts have to say on this important topic.
1: We're going to talk about both barriers and facilitators to HIV testing, prevention, and treatment services in Black, Indigenous, people of color, communities, and migrant populations, as well as strategies to overcome health system-based and healthcare professional-based barriers to engagement with care. We'll start first with the barriers to HIV testing, prevention and treatment. And so we know that HIV disproportionately impacts black, indigenous and people of color in the United States. And we also know that it disproportionately can impact some migrant and immigrant communities as well. The Kaiser Family Foundation in 2014 found that among individuals that were 18 years and older included in their survey, HIV testing was actually highest or greatest among black individuals followed by Latinx and then white individuals. And even within that, of the black individuals that tested positive for HIV, only 60% of them were immediately referred to care. And so one of the things I hope to be able to address today is why we might see high rates in HIV testing among black and Latinx populations, but also why in spite of the higher rates of testing in those populations, we still see about the same percentage of individuals, regardless of their race and ethnicity, presenting to care with advanced stages of HIV. So here's a a particular slide about migrant population data as well. And this study comes from the uh, National Health Interview Survey, which is actually a survey that collects data throughout the United States and has been in existence since the 1970s. It is such a large survey that it has the ability to actually break things down, not only by things that we typically think of for demographics, but also by immigrant status. And so what this study found was that among all individuals, only 51% of the individuals that were immigrants within this study had actually had a prior HIV test. In addition with the um, intention to being tested, it was much lower at 17.2. But what was interesting is that for individuals that were classified as Hispanic white immigrants, they had lower percentages of prior HIV tests as well as intention for HIV testing irregardless of the presence of particular factors that may place them at a higher chance of getting HIV compared to their Black non-Hispanic and Hispanic Black immigrant colleagues. And so, again, this is additional data that, that shows that not only are Black and Latinx Americans having higher rates of HIV testing, but the same is true for the similar populations that also immigrant populations. And so what are some of the challenges to accessing care, particularly among our um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, or BIPOC populations? And so one study found that among this population that actually has access to an internist, a family medicine provider, or a pediatrician, rates of testing actually go up. But what that same study found is that this particular group or groups of individuals um, are less likely to maybe have that kind of primary care provider. And so without that access, there's lower rates of STI testing, and in turn, then lower rates of HIV testing as well, regardless of if individuals are getting STI testing first or they're getting STI and HIV testing at the same time. In addition, we see that there are challenges, particularly among our young Black men who have sex with men, when it comes to their social determinants of health. And so, for instance... One model definitely shows that housing instability, food insecurity, and or internalized homonegativity, and internalized homonegativity is that, that internal feeling that one might feel and negative feeling about their sense of self in, regard, in regards to their sexual um, status or sexual preference, um, in this case, maybe being biased or um, gay, that comes from external forces. And so housing stability, food insecurity, and internalized homonegativity can lead to increased anxiety, depression, and stress. And then with that, there's less focus maybe on HIV testing for a variety of reasons, but the reality is the testing rates are lower. Another example of how social determinants of health can impact HIV testing, particularly in Black communities, is this model that I've displayed on the screen. And so what you'll see on the left-hand box, you see Black racial concentration, social economic deprivation, income inequality. They actually have a relationship where Greater levels of racial concentration of Black individuals oftentimes leads to those particular neighborhoods being more socioeconomically deprived, which can lead to differences in income inequality. And so what we see with this particular model is when when that is actually going into effect, we see that HIV testing accessibility goes down. One of the reasons it goes down is just lack of access to actual places to get tested. In addition to that, other structural barriers that keep individuals from going to get tested. And when that happens, then you actually see a relationship between those particular increases in in some of the negative social determinants of health, leading to later diagnoses of HIV, meaning you're in a a more advanced stage of HIV when you are diagnosed. But it's interesting to also note, and this likely can explain why we see higher rates of testing, particularly in Black communities, since that's what this model is, is pertaining to, of HIV testing. And so what we see and what this study showed is that among places where there were HIV testing accessibility at some point that lack of resources recognized and additional interventions were developed and deployed in those neighborhoods, and those communities, um, and they increased HIV testing. That's a great thing. However, I'd be remiss if I say, even though the, the testing rates went up, they didn't necessarily go up in a timely manner, meaning you're still ending up engaging people, diagnosing people when they're advanced, they're at later stages of their HIV. So it's something to think about, how we can actually address this in the moment so that we can have more timely HIV diagnoses. When we talk about barriers to HIV testing in migrant uh, communities, the biggest barrier perhaps is language. And it plays out in a couple of ways. One is where the healthcare providers themselves actually don't feel like they have the self-efficacy to actually employ or give their actual message about the importance of HIV testing. And then the language barrier also further is complicated. And interacts with health literacy in general, because we know that health literacy is completely different than literacy. And then when you're compounding that with having to learn it in a different language that may not be your first, things get extremely complicated. There are two additional reasons, which are listed on the table below, that both healthcare professionals and individuals that are maybe from migrant populations agree upon that actually inhibit or decrease HIV testing. And that's lack of time. From the provider's perspective, that's lack of time in the visit to address maybe HIV testing on top of other things. Whereas in the um, client or or patient perspective, it's lack of time to actually maybe go and get that visit taken care of. Or if the HIV testing is not co-located within the place that the visit is occurring, lack of time to then go somewhere else and get HIV tested. And then the other one is also having already been screened. And so there's studies that show oftentimes individuals have already been screened when they first entered maybe our country and may not recognize the importance of additional regular screening. Additional barriers to HIV prevention strategies are listed on this slide, and you can see that they're separated by information structural and healthcare professional-based barriers. And really, within information, we know because, for example, pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is what a lot of prevention strategies are focused on now, has been around for 10 years. And we know that it wasn't until recently that more communities of color, or so BIPOC populations, or maybe even trans or heterosexual populations, Um, or youth populations are now getting the message about PrEP. And so that's one issue. But another issue is just really the quality um, and source of the information. Depending on where you live or what sources you have access to, you may encounter individuals, whether they're somewhere within the health system or they're your social networks, that may have different biases or medical mistrust or just may not have enough information about what PrEP is. So there are providers that may still be uneasy about the concept of PrEP. And so that can actually impact the information that you receive. Structural barriers probably come as no surprise, such as geographic location and isolation. We know certain places in this country have a lot more access to PrEP and other resources compared to other regions. And cultural barriers as well, and I've highlighted the South, but the reality is there's every region and every place in our country may have its own cultural barriers, as well as structural barriers like cost, as well as same-day PrEP starts, which also goes back to kind of the health professionals' views and beliefs. For many of them, that's they might be the, the biggest barrier to that same day start, their comfort level with prescribing. And then we always need to make sure that we're taking a culturally humble approach. So, like, so having this idea of do you have access to LGBTQIA affirming healthcare providers or sexual health affirming healthcare providers? And are you making sure that your system is set up to prevent discrimination and to foster positive relationships? This is a selected uh, systematic review from Makata and their team. And what they did is they actually found 24 articles within the last 10 years or so that really dealt with beliefs and access to PrEP barriers among MSM and trans women in general. What I did on these next two slides is I actually separated them out for particularly for MSM and trans women who are people of color. So most of these articles are black and Latinx populations. But what you can see is the barriers are pretty similar. These first four are actually interventions that happened among Black and Latinx MSM and or trans women, but knowledge, structural barriers, as well as challenges with particular providers were a common theme. Likewise, in the following slide, you can see that these are all exploratory and or qualitative studies, again, with Black MSM and trans women. And the same barriers are still existing. And what I hope you notice is there's not a lot of data particularly about our trans women of color. There's only one particular barrier that highlights that trans women of color specifically said this when it comes to trans women in this review. And so we have some work to do there. When we talk about barriers to HIV treatment services among our BIPOC populations, the largest thing that that many of these barriers are grounded in are in systemic racism and other systems of oppression. And so whether it's physically having to go to a facility that's viewed as substandard maybe because of the uh, physical aesthetics of it, or it's because your healthcare professional might have some microaggressions or may not focus on you as an individual and really focuses on you as Black people or you as Latino people or something like that. Those are our messages that are actually hindering our ability to provide HIV treatment and really HIV care across the spectrum of um, HIV status. And you can also see the medical mistrust that this actually can lead to really amplifies concerns um, that negate an individual to really understand and focus on the medicine they're taking is, is good for their health because there's that distrust and they wonder if what they're being told is correct. Additional barriers to prevention and treatment, particularly among migrant populations, again, language is that big barrier, and so I, I, I won't go into that in addition, but access to healthcare. So sometimes, depending on what your immigration status is, you may or may not have access to insurance and or facilities that are able to see you in a timely manner um, and things like that. In addition, you may be risking your life, depending on where you live and what's going on in your, your area, just trying to go and seek healthcare services. And then again, health literacy is a large barrier. Because I'm a a pediatrician and an adolescent medicine uh, physician, I'd be remiss if I didn't incorporate youth in here. We know that all youth have this perception of invulnerability, uh, but there's particularly lack of information about how HIV is transmitted, depending on where you are and what community ascribed to be in. And so particularly for our youth of color, when you add that layer of maybe not having the most up-to-date or the most accurate information about HIV and HIV acquisition, To the perception of instability or invulnerability, things become particularly dangerous. and, And those are barriers to getting them in care for testing, treatment, or prevention. And then there's this lack of understanding of what concurrent sex, sexual monogamy, and a sort of mixing is. And a sort of mixing probably many people have heard of. And that's the idea of you particularly choosing to engage in sex with someone that is in your group. Maybe you're Black and so you choose to have sex with Black individuals. With that, we know that certain groups ten, tend to be more disproportionately impacted, so our Black and our Latinx groups, for instance, and so a sort of mixing can compound this. Concurrent sex, that's the idea of you being in a relationship with someone, and then before you end that relationship with that first person, you're already in another a relationship, a sexual relationship with a second person. So you're having sex at the two times, but eventually that first person does fade off, and so you're back to having sex with one partner. That as well as serial monogamy, which is basically you have sex with one person, you break up, you're on to the next person, you break up. Those things there, when you're not actually pausing to get tested, really compound the ability to kind of understand and take charge of your sexual health. And those things are augmented within our youth of color. Additional barriers um, for youth of color, particularly for PrEP, a lot of them really deal with the individual. And so for me, what I want to highlight on this is that every youth that you get in front of you, whether you use the color or not, it really is about them as an individual and talking to them and figuring out what their concerns are. And then the same thing for treatment. It's always individualized care. Again, I will highlight the green box. The green box really speaks to making sure you understand developmentally what's going on with youth and that frontal cortex is still developing um, and the fact that everything is going to be an immediate gratification and they're not really so worried about long-term gratification. And so, you know, having um, them adhere to their medicine is really so they can continue playing that sport or going to school or dating whoever they're dating, as opposed to them living to be 60, 70, 90 power old And so some facilitators for HIV testing, prevention, and treatment in these particular populations. So when we're talking about HIV testing, some of the biggest facilitators are really engaging in social trust. And there's data that shows that if the community you live in really believes that they're working together to have a a collaborative, positive group experience. That actually leads to more testing, STI and HIV both in that community. In addition, having uh, trust with your healthcare professional and um, having a healthcare professional that's willing to prescribe as well as you willing to receive receive prep are super important. And part of that's teach back. Um, And so making sure that if you're on the professional end, that you're actually engaging in teach back, which is this idea of making sure that they understand what you said, as well as this idea of really focusing on the individual. There are studies that show that if you focus on what an individual is interested in in PrEP, as opposed to your standard list of what you say to people with PrEP, you actually get more people that start PrEP and that stay on PrEP. Home-based HIV STI screening in general is is extremely helpful and it's also helpful for your immigrant and your migrant populations, particularly thinking about which resources and how much resources you have and making sure that you are finding a home-based test kit that actually will work for your community. And then in-person tailored stigma reduction interventions, that's things like having safe spaces. There are studies that show like male safe spaces are healthy. So that would be a barbershop maybe where you can actually have these real life talks about HIV or sexual health. Those are things that we we really need to think about in addition to incorporating intersectionalities into our interventions. So I'm not just black, I'm black and a woman or things like that. These are some of the HIV treatment and facilitators for uh, migrant populations. And so incorporation of social support, it's making sure that you have a supportive network for individuals is key. Feelings of mutual respect between them and their provider is also key. For Black cisgendered women that happen to be migrant populations as well, making sure that they remind themselves or that they're able to remember that they're caregivers, that can provide some extra um, motivation to keep them going, as well as them having some kind of um, external faith factor, belief factor, so faith, religion, spirituality, and trusting in their medical team. The one thing I want to highlight towards the bottom is for our maybe our Latinx communities, and there's this idea that we're, many of us are familiar with, which is machismo, and then there's also, I'm going to mispronounce it, so I'm sorry, caballismo, and that's this idea of chivalry and uh, making famil- familial ties, And there are studies that show that men that are able to kind of elevate that portion of their personality over the machismo portion actually have more emotional connectedness and actually are more likely to stay engaged and be adherent to their HIV treatment. And I'm going to pass it over to my colleague.
2: All right. Thank you, Dr. Hell. Uh, I want to just uh, zone in a little bit on barriers and facilitators for ART adherence among HIV positive Black and Latino MSM. And this was a qualitative study that was published a couple years ago, where the authors did some semi-structured interviews of Black and Latinx MSM with HIV, about 84 of them in Atlanta, Baltimore, D.C., Los Angeles, and Chicago. And only 27.4% reported consistently receiving antiretroviral therapy. One of the the themes that came out that the authors left home with was that um, it's highlighted in the blue text in the bottom of this slide, was that men were more likely to receive ART when having healthcare professionals who communicated effectively and were perceived to treat them with respect. And this is a theme that we're gonna be building on and Dr. Hill, in her excellent review of all the data that she was presenting, really showed uh, a lot of the things that are happening and a lot of the gaps that we're looking at with healthcare professionals. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about strategies to overcome health system-based barriers to engagement with HIV care. And I want to start with this slide here because we're all very familiar with the HIV care continuum, but this was a modification of it that we actually saw first with uh, NASTAD. They presented this in 2018, and it's on a white paper report that they published some years ago, the National Alliance of State and Territorial AIDS Directors. You can see social determinants that influence the HIV care continuum, and they called it the bar before the bars, right? So, you see the basic tenets of the HIV care continuum being diagnosed with HIV, linked to care, engaged in care, prescribed ART, and then virally suppressed. You can see the blue bar at the beginning are all the social contextual factors. You can see the list there that influences people as they navigate through the health or the HIV care continuum. The point I wanna make here is that not only are these things happening in society, but these same isms and models of social determinants and discrimination are happening intrinsically within uh, the healthcare system as well and impacting them as they try to navigate things. So in other words, the people that are exerting this stigma that happens in social are the same people that are hired as healthcare professionals and staff members in the healthcare facilities that are supposed to be helping them get on their ART and do well. So one of the important things that we talk about and that's been researched is the importance of wraparound services in these contexts. People are going through a lot of stuff in their individual lives. So incorporating case management and social work to help with things like transportation, housing, food assistance, insurance, navigating systems, as well as mental health counseling and medication treatment that would include substance abuse referrals and treatment as well, um, and also including needle exchange programs, giving people access to internet if they don't have that. In addition, legal assistance with immigration issues, incarceration, et cetera. And as Dr. Hill mentioned earlier, it's particularly important with our, um, I say, I know we say BIPOC, sometimes I just use BIPOC. So if I say BIPOC, that's what I'm referring to. BIPOC um, our LGBTQIA youth and uninsured populations. And then also the tenant of working or moving beyond medical sites. So if we're having a lot of barriers and issues within medical facilities, what can we do to actually fortify community-based organizations and community initiatives To build on some of these things and provide some of the services that we see traditionally in traditional healthcare brick and mortar settings, I think it's important to mention that there's there should be a restaurant, and I put the analogy of a restaurant menu options that patients should have. Patients' lives are fluid, particularly their sexual lives and their conditions and what happens. So, giving people options with how they get HIV tested, whether they can receive rapid testing, traditional serologic testing, or get testing at home or through other facilities needs to be a part of the process. In addition to flexibility to adapt to the patient's lived experiences, people will experience homelessness, loss of jobs, other traumatic experiences in their lives and may not be able to make a physical appointment. So in those cases, things like telemedicine, mobile visits, a group coming out to actually visit somebody at their home is going to be helpful to be flexible along with the flexibility that we see in our patients' lives. And one of the uh, more controversial things that we've seen in the literature of the past few years is uh, is the whole topic of financial incentives with keeping people engaged in care. Um, Some studies have found that it can increase the uptake of HIV testing and keeping people engaged in treatment, but issues around linkage and sustained engagement become an issue over time. And then if we can scale this from something that's a smaller research study that shows if you give people a gift card or financial incentive, incentive in terms of money, whether that can be scaled to a larger, a larger population. And then the question that a lot of people have is what happens when the money runs out? It's great when you have a research study, but if the money runs out, then what's gonna happen with people? Do they fall out of care at that point? So I still think there's a lot of debate going about this topic. One of the things I will mention that I think is particularly important, and this was a study uh, published, a working paper published by the National uh, Bureau of Economic Research back in 2018, It's a randomized clinical trial. And this is a very innovative thing that they did. They kind of created a clinic in Oakland, California and used a sample size of about 1,300 Black men. And we didn't have information on the sexuality. So some of them may may have been men who have sex with men or cisgender heterosexual. We weren't clear. But the participants were randomized to Black or non-Black doctors and asked about their willingness to receive health screening tests before and then after seeing the doctors. And so they compared to participants' willingness to receive these preventive tests before they spoke to the doctor and then afterwards. And what they found was that there was no significant difference in uptake of services before the doctor visit between the ones that saw a Black doctor or a non-Black doctor. But if you see that second bullet point that's highlighted in red, there was a significant positive difference in uptake of services after the doctor visit among those who saw a Black doctor versus those who saw a non-Black doctor. And the uptake of invasive screenings only increased among those who saw a Black doctor. And these were preventive services. I'm going to show a a bar graph that reflects some of the data from this study. Um, But looking at things like taking blood pressure, diabetes with an HbA1c or a finger stick, cholesterol testing, and also BMI testing. So the question comes up, does patient-provider racial concordance matter for the utilization of preventive medicine? And I will mention that one of the significant or one of the important things to note about this study is that they did find statistical significance in these differences that they found. So the answer to that question from the perspective of these researchers was yes. And I wanna move forward and pass it back to Courtney before I finish up with the last slides. but we're gonna talk a little bit about patient perspective.
3: Yes, thank you, Dr. Malbranch. Now we will listen to audio clips from Daniel. A patient sharing experiences on disparities in HIV care in the U.S. and ways in which those barriers can be reduced. The first question is, please describe any cultural barriers you experience during your healthcare visit. Please play the first recording for this question. Having
4: more of an established care and having more of an established relationship, I think one of the cultural barriers that I've experienced at my medical home most recently is, you know, not just being, not being able to see frontline staff or even clinical staff that's reflective of myself or the population that they mostly take care of, you know? So I definitely think if a clinic is taking care of a majority of people of color and the clinician staff is completely opposite of your patient population. I definitely think those types of things can create some cultural barriers.
3: The second question is, what advice do you have for clinicians for providing culturally appropriate HIV care?
4: I think opening a brave space to ask your patients, you know, how best can we improve your healthcare?
3: The third question is, what advice do you have for clinicians for reducing health disparities in HIV care?
4: I think using like the internet or using different social media platforms to follow younger professionals, seeing if they can come in and do clinical education sessions, clinical improvement sessions, or even beefing up not only social media, but just basic communication strategies. For our population, I think those things you know begin to build and increase health literacy, which ultimately should increase the health objectives of our patient populations.
3: It is my great pleasure to turn things back over to our faculty speaker, Dr. Mal Brunch.
2: So let's go on, and I'm going to talk a little bit, and I'm going to hold down for these slides to looking at care with Black MSM. And as Dr. Hill noted before, and as we know from the EPI. About two-thirds of all the new HIV diagnosis are among men who have sex with men, and the majority are among Black and Latin MSM. So I think it's important to look at these variables, but some of the tenets will actually be uh, generalizable to some other uh, BIPOC populations. So these were some studies that looked at variables influencing engagement in HIV care among Black MSM. Some of the negative associations were perceived racism. I put it in quotation marks because sometimes we say perceived as if it doesn't exist. But we have to be clear that even when it's perceived, it isn't just a figment of someone's imagination, as well as HIV stigma and sexual prejudice. And then a negative association was people more likely to utilize ED care were less likely to be engaged in HIV care. And some of the more positive associations found in the literature were already being in care for an HIV diagnosis. So you already had that connection and engagement. Having a college degree no recent marijuana or meth use. And then this last positive association was interesting. Healthcare-specific racial discrimination was actually positively associated with seeing a healthcare professional. And the authors of that study actually speculated that this was the possibility of some kind of resilience, some kind of John Henryism, where people are finding some barriers or finding some discrimination and still kind of plow through for the importance of their care. But we don't want to kind of encourage that. It tends to put the onus on the patient rather than making healthcare facilities look at ourselves. And then this slide talking about variables influencing receipt of ART among black MSM. Some of the negative associated variables were perceptions of homophobia. So again, back to what Dr. Hill was saying, people can be both black and same gender loving or of the queer community, um, or people can be black and women, black and trans at the same time. And so people will be getting these perceptions of different levels of oppression, and also depression diagnosis or symptoms was negatively associated with receiving ART. And then positive variables were easy accessibility of HIV treatment, comfort with a healthcare professional, and then being involved in a defined gay community was also associated. This was an interesting study from about 15 years ago, and I'd love to see more studies on this because I do think they're very important. This was from the Antiretroviral Treatment Access Study or ARTIS, which was a multi-center randomized trial of intensive case management support versus standard of care passive referral in persons who had been recently diagnosed with HIV. And the intensive case management and support for this clinical, or not clinical, but randomized trial, included five contacts over 90 days with a case manager using strength-based techniques to keep people engaged in care and talk about ART adherence. And what they found in the outcomes was that the rates of receiving HIV care within six months, with the intensive case management, was 78%. Uh, remained engaged, whereas with the standard passive referral was 60 percent, and this was statistically significant. So again, the kind of importance of not just giving people brochures and sending them home and then having them come back and see us, but actually being engaged and seeing what else we can do as healthcare professionals. And then, of course, the importance of case managers who are often overworked and underappreciated and underpaid. What works with engagement among Black MSM? Some studies have talked about utilizing peer networks, incorporating technology, making healthcare access fun or something that's a little bit more lively than the traditional kind of stoic, conservative, depressing approach that we see with a lot of healthcare facilities. And then also providing holistic healthcare. There are a lot of studies that demonstrate, particularly for Black MSM, but also other communities of color, will state things like, I don't wanna be generalized, as Dr. Hill stated earlier, to just being a part of the community. Focus on me as an individual and what I'm telling you. So we have to make things more tailor-made for our patients in general. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit and we'll wrap things up with strategies to overcome healthcare professional-based bias barriers of engagement with HIV care. And we talk a lot about cultural competency and humility programs. There was a study that came out a little bit earlier this year by Hull and her colleagues, that looked at the likelihood of prep conversations and prescribing to standardized black patients by healthcare professionals and how it was associated with racism scores and what they found out was that healthcare professionals who were more like who were scoring highly on racism scores standardized racism measures were less likely to have a prep conversation and prescribe to their black patient in particular with cisgendered black women and so when we talk about cultural competency and humility programs there's a lot of work that we still need to do with addressing general and implicit bias, uh, training more than just healthcare professionals. So the front desk, the phlebotomist, everybody else that's going to be involved in contacting the patient or interacting with the patient during their visit, holding our staff accountable. So giving space for constructive feedback when we do do something wrong or we slip up so that it can be improved and letting an employee know at that time so they can improve on whatever they're doing. And then also establishing systems for patient feedback complaints, and as well, compliments. Um, I think a lot of times we talk about the doom and gloom, but I think patients should also have a vehicle by which they can actually applaud a physician, a nurse practitioner, PA, another staff member that they may really enjoy who has done an amazing job. Dr. Hill mentioned earlier about language, and I think a lot of times we talk about languages in um, someone using a different language, whether it be English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, But even when we speak the same language, we can talk about some of the stigma and how language matters. And people may say, well, how does the language that we use influence these racial inequities? Well, if we have a racial inequity at the foundation of who is getting exposed to HIV, who's contracting HIV, and then who is falling through the cracks with the HIV care continuum, we have to look at these things as something that further perpetuates these racial inequities. So On the left-hand side of this slide, you can see some of the stigmatizing language. HIV-infected person, AIDS patient, using disease language first, positive or HIV years. Common one that I still see today is someone had full-blown AIDS. I'm not sure what that means to this day, but we need to kind of check some of this language. Mother to child transmission, compliant, prostitute. And on the right-hand side, you can think of some of the ways we can mention these things, either using person language first or doing other things that can help de-stigmatize the language we use when we talk about HIV, because I think when people are turned off by the language they hear from staff and providers, they'll be less likely to engage in care. So saying a person living with HIV, zero new transmissions, saying adherent instead of compliance, and then talking positively about sex work and transactional sex instead of the pejorative term prostitute. And then this is a slide I put up. I had a conversation about a year ago with a friend of mine who called me on the phone. And for those of us who are healthcare providers, we get these calls from family members and friends all the time. And he had just had sex without a condom with somebody 24 hours before and wanted post-exposure prophylaxis or PEP. So on the left-hand side of this slide, these are the, the phrases that he used in our conversation. And he was so apologetic. He said, David, I did something stupid. I know I'm being paranoid, but I'm really worried about HIV. And then he kept apologizing to me and said, I know I'm being a hypochondriac. What I want to suggest to us as providers is, is when people use this language, it's obviously internalized from stigma that they've not only heard in general community, in their families and friendship networks, but also within healthcare communities themselves. Some of the biggest perpetuators of these negative language, like saying HIV infected, are healthcare professionals ourselves. So we need to work on that. So I told him to kind of switch up the language a little bit. Instead of saying, I did something stupid, you had sex without a condom. Say I had good sex, because I asked him, did he enjoy it? And he said, yes, I absolutely did. So you can say, you can rephrase it like that. I know I'm being paranoid. Change that to, I know the reality of STIs and HIV out there. So while I had good sex without a condom, I also am pretty aware of what's happening in my neighborhood, and I want to get checked for STIs. And then I know I'm being a hypochondriac. Change that to, I'm proactive about my sexual health. People are labeled as hypochondriacs, but simply they are just, reflecting the reality of what's going on with STIs and trying to enjoy their sexual health. So instead of dismissing people as hypochondriacs, we can say that you're actually doing something proactive for your sexual health. And then I want to put a word about pipeline programs. Um, We've talked a little bit about representation here, both in staff with healthcare providers, but we need for staff to represent community serve. And I think the patient perspective from Daniel also reiterated that. There are interventions that show success in improving acceptance of general Uh, health preventive services that we need to explore looking at this, as well as issues of mentorship. Those of us who have been involved in HIV care research prevention for a long period of time, mentoring some of the younger healthcare professional students that are coming up. And then finally, financial incentives for HIV specialization. I know when I went to medical school and I got out of medical school residency, I was in debt. I was about $200,000 in debt. And so there are specialties that actually reward people more or are higher paying. And HIV is not one of those specialties. So I think if we can figure out some ways combining public and private sectors to either forgive loans or give more financial incentives for HIV specialization, we will get people more likely because it seems like an insurmountable goal when you leave health professional school. And I think we can get more black and brown people into uh, HIV uh, healthcare professions if we actually do something proactively about that. And then finally, before I switch it over to Courtney, I wanna bring us back to the most important part of all this, which is community. And as healthcare professionals, we actually are members of these communities. And instead of doing something where we say, okay, we've come up with an idea and then bringing it to the community for their approval or their sign-on, start with collaborating with communities, ask qualitative and needs assessment questions to find out what their needs are, not what the perceived needs are from us as healthcare professionals develop peer programs to help with navigation, uh, develop community advisory boards that will hold us accountable for what we're doing. And then finally, incorporating more town forums and discussion and dissemination of both research and updates about what's available at our clinics. A lot of times communities see researchers come in or institutions come in, utilize the community to uh, conduct a research project, and then they bounce. They don't give any materials afterwards. They don't give any dissemination of Uh, what information was gathered. And so I think we would do our communities a big favor and work on some of the distrust that we've fostered in the communities by actually engaging more and then doing follow up so that something is sustained rather than it just, hey, we're coming in to use you for some of these research studies that we're conducting and then we're going to leave. So I think bringing it back to community is going to be helpful in keeping people engaged in the HIV care continuum. And with that, I will pass it back over to Courtney for some questions and answers.
3: Thank you, Drs. Hill and Branch, for that excellent presentation. We've had a number of questions from participants and we'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can now. One question is from Philip, who asks, do you have any suggestions for youth who have parents resistant to discussion of sexual health or PrEP when the youth is open to discussion, but the parent is not? So faculty, please share your suggestions, if any. I'm happy to um,
1: give some suggestions on what I do. So I think it's twofold. Um, when I'm talking to the youth and I'm talking to the youth, um, I always give them their time to talk to me in private, as I do with the parents as well, actually. You know, I see what their interest is. I also see what their, their knowledge and their level of commitment is and what sources and systems they have around them to help them be successful with PrEP. But at the same time, I ask them, you know, how do they feel about maybe parents or their guardian? Because I do know from many youth, explanation of benefits go home and things like that. And also I want to make sure that I'm encouraging open dialogue between the youth and the parent. And so when I do come across discordance between what the youth want and what the parents want, I always just start with an open discussion. And sometimes you're not going to be able to get around the parent. And what I say generally is I help the youth I help the youth kind of open that conversation because usually it might be that the parent is not aware of certain things that they're doing in the sense of the parents, like they're not having sex or they have one significant other or you know pick pick a list of things that they could be doing. And so that's not my responsibility to inform the parent, but I try to help empower the youth to actually start this conversation in my office and continue it at home. That's one strategy I use. For some youth though, that are... um, really um that understand and are not willing to change some of their behaviors that place them at maybe i don't like using the term risk but like higher chances of possibly um acquiring or getting hiv for some of them you know we have to have serious conversations because we have to figure out you know can i prescribe prep to you without your parents um consent like is this a state where you're at of the, the correct age and i can prescribe it um and if so we talk through that and figure out Um, if we could do that. But for other youth, it's really, I really try to make sure that I'm building and continue to contribute to a positive family dynamic as best as I can. And so
3: it's really variable is the answer to your question. Thank you, Dr. Hill. And the next question is from Hosea, who asks, working with youth and young adults as you are fostering those relationships, What are some tips and strategies you would use to get those demographics to buy into adding their physical and sexual health onto their list of priorities?
2: I'll say something quickly. I've worked in student health before, and one of the things that i found is that the students are actually already on board with a lot of that. It's the providers. We're the ones that are kind of stuck in the mud with it. But if a student comes in and they're not kind of engaging in it, what I try to do is, is similar to the balance that Dr. Hill said earlier, is that You know, you want to encourage someone because it's a time of exploration. Like adolescents and young adults are really like trying to figure stuff out, experimenting, not sure what's going on. And so to be able to hold them by the hand with that and encourage them for that sexual exploration, but then also giving them a, a healthy balance of what's out there. And it may not be always their fault. So for me, it's always about the language. So you don't say something like, well, you're using condoms, right? Or you know, you should be using condoms. You have to say, well, look, this is what you can get if you don't use condoms, these are some of the things that can happen. I want you to experience pleasure. I want you to enjoy sex like you are. And I want you to continue to come into me to get testing or contact me if you have any questions. I think sometimes just leaving that available for them so that they know that you're there. I'm one of those people that tends to give uh, patients my cell phone number, which a lot of people don't because they they don't want to abuse it. But I can tell you that even students and even when I've worked with youth in HIV clinics, People do not abuse my cell phone number. They'll ask me questions, and usually when they're texting me or calling me, it's because something's going on.
1: You know, you, you said exactly what I was going to say, and I think we're, I guess we're pretty similar. The, the language is key, and for a lot of um, young people, because I, I go down to, like, age 11, not that those are always the people that are coming in for this particular um, discussion, but for some of my, like, maybe late middle school, early high school students, it really is, this conversation of, you know, you're having sex. Okay, ideally, right, we would hope that everybody waits, right? As a pediatrician, that's what they train me to say. Ideally, everybody would wait. But the reality is you're having sex and you're having sex now. But you seem to be very anxious or worried. And are you really enjoying that sex? And so having that sex-positive language and helping them understand that caring about your sexual health and your reproductive health can actually help you enjoy sex because you have your system set up for how frequently you're getting tested or, you know, how how to actually negotiate condom use. You know how to say no, if you don't want to have sex, those kind of things are what I talk about. And then I'm similar to Dr. Malbranch in that I work with um, a variety of individuals and some of the individuals have my, my cell phone number and they don't, they don't abuse it. It's literally like, Hey, Dr. Hill, I need to come in for testing. Can you get me in? And, you know, I hand that message off to the nursing. And so it's not something that I'm sure Dr. Malbranch or neither one of us recommend or advise that for everybody, but it is something I've had to adjust to because I do work with some individuals who really do have a lot of social determinants of health that impede access to care. And I've had to be unique in my approach to making sure that they stay healthy.
2: And sometimes there are institutional barriers where they are trying to get in contact with the clinic and no one calls them back and they're really urgent and they're really panicking. Mm -hmm. And it's reassuring for them to know that they can contact us and we can at least relay that message. Like Dr. Hill was saying, to a nurse, to someone at the clinic to kind of take care of things, or even just call in a simple prescription or order a test if we're remote, if we're not working at the clinic at the time is always helpful to patients.
3: Thank you. We have a few more questions if you have the time. Another question is from Sylvester who asks, can self-stigma contribute to failure to access care and treatment and retention to care? I know we spoke on this earlier, but if you want to elaborate further, please do.
2: Yeah, I would I would say yes, yes, and yes. I think what's happened at this point, and I actually just got a phone call uh, on a personal level of the sister of a friend that I had from like 30 years ago, whose family was very religious, and she suspects he may be at end stage AIDS right now, and he is still not telling people what's going on. It broke my heart to hear it, but what I think is that society and the medical profession has ingrained so much stigma into HIV still, some of it intentional, some of it non-intentional, that people internalize it to the point. And the example I gave with my friend who called me wanting post-exposure prophylaxis is a clear example of that. He's apologizing the whole time, calling himself a hypochondriac, saying he did something stupid, all these kind of negative terminologies. And then after I talked to him, and rephrased his language where he goes, I feel a lot better now. And then I got him connected with the clinic, and he got on post-exposure prophylaxis at the time. But I think it is a problem, not only with HIV prevention, but also HIV treatment. So both of those branches of the HIV neutral continuum that we look at, depending on what happens when someone gets an HIV test, once it's internalized, can become a huge barrier to people following up with care.
1: And I'm just going to add and say explicitly, like, it doesn't matter, you know, what group you identify with or look like as a, as a person within healthcare, all of us have these biases and maybe some internalized stigma that we may not be aware of that, that comes out. And so none of the things that we're talking about today are meant to make anybody feel bad. We're just trying to bring the evidence to all of us that are probably on this, this Zoom or this, this webinar and all of us that are engaged and in, in working with these populations. We all have to continually make sure we're checking ourselves. Right. Just because someone is racially concordant with me, I'm sitting in front of another black person, doesn't mean I understand their experience, doesn't mean I understand what they're going through and doesn't mean that something that could even be a microaggression could come out. So these are these are things that we have to keep in mind in order for us to all advance uh, the ending of the HIV plan that,
3: that we're trying to work towards. Thank you so much. Next question is from Octavio. Do you think new prep and art delivery systems will help to reduce the lack of adherence? Um,
1: You want to go first on this one? Yeah, Yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, I, I think it's yes and no. I think this goes back to, you know, I think Dr. Malbranch, very final slide about community, right? If we're not also incorporating community and know the communities we serve, then the answer might be no. So I give the example all the time. I work with teens and so, and I work with guys and girls, different genders, different races, different sexual behaviors. Everybody's like, oh, the ring is going to be so awesome for girls. And I explain, you know, well, where I live, very few <laughs> girls under the age of 25 use a vaginal ring. Like, that's just not what they use for contraception. So it's not going to change with PrEP, right? Or thinking about the injections, right? Can you, are you better remembering to take a pill every day? Or are you better to remember to come in every month and get an injection? I don't know the answers to these, but I think as these new systems come into play, we will have to make sure that we're looking at our specific communities and making sure that we're Offering and addressing their needs, even though we're going to try to generalize things, we still all work in specific communities that might differ.
2: Yeah, and I agree a hundred percent. I was gonna say the exact words were yes and no when I heard about that because I think they can help. And I think one of the points that I often make in these presentations and discussions that we have is that we get very excited about the science, and the science is moving forward at, at an exponential rate. So you look at injectables you look at subcutaneous treatment that could be administered every 6 months you look at rings you look at microbicides other kinds of delivery systems that can do either hiv prevention or treatment the problem is is that we haven't invested the resources and money into the social advancement to match that and so unfortunately what happens is that we geek out as academics as healthcare professionals as researchers we geek out over these wonderful delivery systems But we don't take the time to develop the infrastructure for how this is going to work. So, for instance, even with HIV treatment, we have an injectable treatment that's every month now. And I was working at a clinic that served a predominantly uninsured population, about 80 percent. So they were reliant on Ryan White and ADAP, as well as patient assistance programs. And as I left the clinic in late September... We hadn't put one person on that injectable treatment yet. It wasn't because they didn't know about it or they didn't want it. They asked about it, but it wasn't approved on the ADAP formulary. And then there were some problems with the patient assistance program. So I think the infrastructure has to be focused on as well. And while we're developing this fantastic science, we have to go back to the communities, like Dr. Hill said, find out what they need, what's going on, investigate what institutions and clinics are going to be delivering these new vehicles of ART and then figure out how that's going to, how it's going to logistically work. Because if we don't do that work ahead of time, then we're flying by the seat of our pants and we'll have more delays. Or if you still have uh, staff provider contrast, you still have bias, uh, you still have bureaucracy and paperwork of getting ADAP recertification that frustrates people, they still will not come in. And even if you have the most advanced science and technology in the world, people are not going to trust it it's gonna be inconvenient for them and they still won't come in. So I think we need to pay equal attention to both the social advancements and the infrastructure as well as the science itself.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Hill and Dr. Malbranch, and thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder to view the full program, Tackling Racial Disparities in Care for HIV and Viral Hepatitis, and to download the slide set associated with this discussion from the Clinical Care Options website, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.